welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. It's only me today. Uh, Phoebe is away, uh, unfortunately. So do send thoughts, prayers, even though she's fine. Like there's nothing actually wrong with her to warrant those things. But it's nice to pray for people uh, to do that. This week, we are joined by a very special guest, someone who uh, I've been sort of wasting to have on for a while and it's all sort of like been very much rooted around this book coming out uh i am very happy to welcome uh taylor lawrence taylor is the author of extremely online the untold story of fame influence and power on the internet you may have also read her writing in the washington post where she is a tech columnist uh you may have read her writing in the new york times you may have read it on lots of other places if you grew up on the internet like the 2020s where most of you listeners i assume you did um taylor welcome to the show Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this. This is definitely like um, definitely one of those things where because we obviously talk about like creators and like the, what the internet looks like right now and stuff. And you sort of have really condensed a lot of really interesting stories and observations into your book. Um, I very much enjoyed reading it. Uh, for people who aren't aware that you were writing a book or like you know British audience, I'm not sure whether uh, or whether there's a separate date for it to come out uh, where we are. But um, do you want to talk about like what sort of led you to write this book? Um, I think from how I understood it, it's just like you, you sort of really chart what internet culture was like, like in the 90s uh, up until present day. And you sort of chart those changes and the way that we understand celebrity, the way that we understand influence. And as mentioned in the title of the book, the way that we understand power, I think, is really demarcated by these changes. So like for people who aren't aware of it, do you want to like, talk about what the purpose of the book was and what you found? Yeah, definitely. No, that's such a good description. I start in sort of the turn of the millennium. So like you're, you know, 2000 um, with the blog boom, and it kind of talks about um, the rise of the social internet. It's kind of about the first 20 years of the social mm. internet of like, you know, these, obviously things started with blogs, and then you had Friendster, MySpace, Facebook, you know, and sort of like the rise of these different platforms and how they kind of all got us to um, sort of post for the public and how the this sort of like notion of online influence became um, this really powerful currency in our world now. And um, yeah, I talk a lot about kind of the content creator industry itself, which has emerged kind of alongside the rise of these platforms and really mm. shaped these platforms. But it's a sort of a history of the rise of social media from the user side. So there's been a lot of books that um, tell the story of social media through the lens of specific like corporations um mm. like you know like you know the million facebook books we have or like the social network right but like um sure. i wanted to kind of like zoom out and talk about like all these platforms and how they intermingled and how they were shaped by um you know the people that use them i think this is like a really interesting place to start because i think you're right in the sense that I think when I read books about like internet and internet culture, it like at best, it's sort of like a hybrid of things, but it sort of um, takes the position of like, or it sort of like understands it from the plat from the prospect of platforms. And one of the things that we talk about a bit on the show, but is not really covered in mainstream is sort of the relationship that platforms have with their creators. And one of the things that I found really interesting when I was reading your book is how that relationship has sort of changed over time. Um, you begin by talking about like bloggers and you talk about sort of like the early sort of platforms which required um, in order for them to sort of like uh, uh, like make their mark on the internet in the late 90s and the 2000s, they needed people. 
they needed like the first kind of creators, be it like bloggers or fo- like photographers. I wondered whether you could talk to me about or like whether you could sort of explain how you view the way that the idea of the creator has changed. Because I think, as you mentioned in your book, like how we understand the idea of a creator now, uh, which is often kind of located in reference to YouTube or like to now to TikTok, maybe to a certain extent. Um, I mean, those are, I guess those are really the two, when we sort of talk about creators, those are the two main platforms. But like the idea of the creator has sort of gone through such an evolution. Could you tell me a bit more about how that has changed and how people have viewed themselves? Well, like, did they view themselves as creators like back in the 90s and the 2000s or did they view themselves as like something quite distinct and different? Well, the word, yeah, I mean, the word creator wasn't even coined in its modern usage until Next New Networks kind of came up with that term. Um, Previously, YouTubers were called partners, you know, like the, why it's called the partner Mm. program. Um, And they certainly didn't, there was no concept of that. So, I mean, early online content creators were bloggers. um, And so I talk about that, you know, how they, a lot of them self-identified as bloggers and they were bloggers. Um, but it wasn't really, there, there was, it was only platform specific language um, until the mid 2010s. Mm. So you had people that were like Viners, Instagrammers, you know, mm. like YouTube creators, but there wasn't this cross platform word for people that were making things on the internet and monetizing. Mm. I wondered like that, I think that's like a really interesting point because like, I do remember, I do remember like the idea of the Viner um, although I never really used Vine as much as like other people, apparently. Um, but I wonder whether that also kind of illustrated a different relationship with the platform. Because I feel like creator as a term, as we understand it now, almost kind of has this sort of dimension of being a type of labor practice, right? Uh, the idea that you are creating something for a platform, you are engaged in this, mm. like there's a recognition of an economic relationship between said platform and the creator where you sort of expect something back from that. And we can like talk about what those expectations are and how they've changed uh, a bit later on. But I wondered whether there were any expectations of this in the early platforms that, um, you know, when you were sort of looking back on this moment, because I feel like, and again, this is a very sort of anecdotal, I kind of half remember these things, but I don't remember there ever sort of being an expectation of like or some 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 sites some kind of transactional expectation that came with uploading stuff to a platform it kind of felt like you know though yeah that that economic relationship wasn't really there and i wonder um when you were looking back on platforms were there any situations where like bloggers for example did expect to be paid to like put stuff onto these things or were there any people who were well, thinking yeah. about these platforms as like ways of exploiting people exploiting people no i mean i don't think bloggers <laughs> thought that they were like being exploited by the blogging you know by blogger.com or whatever but um i mean certainly they were thinking about monetizing and i talk a lot about sure. that in my book of just sort of like you know the ways that bloggers monetized and how controversial it was for you know the mommy bloggers when they started running ads mm. and stuff. But I think you're totally right. I think like the language that we use um, says a lot about our relationships to the platforms. And you're correct as well, like in saying like, I think when we use that platform specific language, there was more of an understanding of like, I'm creating content for this platform. Um, I But at the time, you know, when that platform specific language was pervasive, there wasn't any money in it. You know what I mean? There wasn't, it, there wasn't mm. tons of money. And I do talk a lot in the Vine chapter about, if there's a couple of Vine chapters, I think there's two, but, um, you know, at one point in the book, I'm talking about kind of like that tension. Vine had a lot of tension between its creators and the company and mm. over money. And, you know, they felt very taken advantage of by the company. And that ultimately, you know, contributed to the app's downfall was that sort of mm. um, 
the fact that they alienated all their biggest creators, obviously something Elon is doing himself now with Twitter. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I think it's only, I mean, only now in the past, maybe year, maybe year and a half, have people actually started to talk about this as a labor issue in a meaningful mm. way. And there's been so many sort of attempts at unions and stuff like over the years, you know, they've all mm. failed, but like, I mean, it's really hard. You have to consider the fact that like all of Silicon Valley was like shit talking content creators constantly until like, again, maybe two years ago um, when they developed the term creator economy and started using it like because they yeah. just dismissed it. It was like, oh, these are women taking selfies. That was always a common refrain or like, oh, the influencer industry is finally over, you know, like that huge mm. news cycle <laughs> in 2018 and previously in 2014 before that, you know, it's just like they've declared it over a million times. They dismiss it. And then finally people are like, wait a minute, people making things for the internet, like, you know, this is real work. And it's like, yeah, it's always been real work. But yeah. people don't think of it that way. And I think a lot of early YouTubers, especially internalize that as well. Like a lot of early content creators, actually not so much YouTubers, because YouTubers has always sort of had a monetization stream, but a lot of early content creators, um, they, did, yeah. they, they devalue their own work because of soci- the way that society kind of treats the people that make things on the internet. Um, you mentioned, uh, just before I go on to like a follow-up question to that, but one of the things I don't want to, uh, forget to ask you is about, is about the mommy bloggers. Um, this was like a really interesting section to me as someone who did not know anything like about them as sort of being pioneers. Uh, and I wondered whether, uh, you could talk to me about your, like how you sort of looked into, uh, what, what kind of things did you find with the mommy bloggers? Like what were the things that they, uh, they were like, you know, leading on that we can now see sort of the long tail of when it comes to like our everyday experiences online. Yeah. I mean, I, the mommy bloggers and I mean, they were transformative. Like they were the true sort of like people that birthed the creator economy. Mm -hmm. Like they, I mean, they were the first to really build like personal brands on the internet around their lives and their daily lives Mm -hmm. and their home lives and their family lives. And and then monetize that and commodify it, which at the time was radical. I mean, I talk in this book about like this moment in 2004 when Heather Armstrong puts ads on her blogs the first time and like how villainized she was, especially by the traditional media um, for doing mm. that. And, you know, and those women, I mean, it's it's wild to think about. And I went back for this book and was rereading a lot of, you know, women's media from that time and from the 2000s or from the 90s. And um you know, it's just deeply, deeply, deeply misogynistic. It, I can't even explain to you the level of misogyny and the way they talked mm. about pregnancy was so out of touch. And so these moms, you know, they are the ones that normalize things like postpartum depression, you know, like not always, you know, feeling like you love your kids, like talking struggles of breastfeeding, not being able to breastfeed. Like these were all like extremely taboo topics that were almost sure. never talked about, you know. And and so I think they built this alternative media ecosystem that was really liberating, you know, for so many people. But of course, it ended up being very fraught. And, you know, they suffered a lot. They were really devalued, I think, for society and villainized for writing candidly about their home lives. Um, But they started off, I mean, the the revenue pathways that they sort of like pioneered are what content creators to this day rely on. Mm. Were there any other like early pioneers that we sort of forget about now, but had like a real impact on... Like internet culture? Yeah, so many. I mean, there's a bunch more in my book, but I mean, I talk a lot in the book about Julia Allison as well. I mean, I think it's notable that it's a lot of women. Um, Mm. And so many women, 
from these days. I mean, there's women also that just didn't want to talk to me for the book because they're so traumatized from that era because they yeah. were so villain. I mean, they were just, I mean, the Julia Allison chapter talks a lot about this, but just like what people did to women that had the audacity to kind of build their own audiences online and define their own online experience and kind of like try to build a personal brand on the internet. Like that, that was, they were, they, they were put through hell for just trying to do the most basic, you know, basic things like Julia Allison's kind of original sin. What made Gawker hate her so much is that she was promoting her blog in the comments section of Gawker articles, Mm. something that everybody does now. I mean, look at the comment section of any celebrity Instagram post. Like all you see is like people promoting their drop shipping stores and stuff like this. All of this stuff is so commonplace, but it was a lot of times it was women that were doing that were pioneering, you know, these behaviors, whether you like it or not, you know, like I don't, I think a lot of these women themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't love the fact that they had to commodify their lives in such a way or promote themselves to such a degree, but sort of what they had to do to survive in this hyper-capitalist like landscape and build their own kind of brands and businesses. Um, But yeah, they, they suffered a lot for it. Yeah. I feel like one of the things I sort of got when I'm reading your book is like this sort of, you know, you don't actually, it's very easy to forget just how mean being online was like not that long ago. I mean, it's still kind of like horrible now as you sort of, you know, as you experience like quite a lot, but the idea of like that type of sort of targeting being so normalized and like so vengeful as well, it's kind of, it's quite remarkable, like how much damage has sort of been caused and like doesn't really get looked back on or sort of understood in this context. A hundred percent. Also, you have to remember, and actually a lot of women talked about this to me, is that like now everyone is on the internet. Your fans also have social media accounts. Back then, it was it was not everyone was on the internet and not everyone had their own social media accounts. Social media basically didn't exist in the form that it does now in the aughts, especially not in the early aughts. And so, you know, these women actually had quite large and powerful audiences like some of the mommy bloggers, but those women, those, their audiences were women that didn't have their own social media. So they were like villainized, you know, by the New York times and other like legacy media or by like men on the internet or, you know, people, but their fans weren't vocal because their fans didn't have social media themselves. Like there was no place, Mm. you know, Twitter didn't really exist to like sound off. So like now it's like everyone has a fandom. And if you cross, you know, the fans will push back and be like, you're wrong, right? You'll have like millions of people. Back then they had millions of people, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of readers, but those people didn't have social media themselves and it wasn't normalized. So they weren't, there wasn't that sort of counterbalance um, to the hate. Mm. It was like only hate and no one coming to your defense. It was really bad. Mm. I mean, this touches on something quite interesting. Uh, one of the key like elements of your book is also sort of an understanding of what celebrity is. Um, and one of the interesting things I, I wanted to ask you to elaborate on is that sort of like middle period where the internet is kind of entering the mainstream. It's not quite there yet. There are some celebrities that are sort of on there. There are some celebrities that are sort of being formed on there, but like are kind of only known to a very small audience. Um, and I wondered whether you could talk about how the idea of celebrity has kind of changed uh, like it will, how you sort of saw the idea of celebrity changing in the course of the timeline that you were examining. I think the idea of like the TikTok celebrity now is kind of like something that basically everyone accepts. And like, you know, even if they have some issues with it, 
uh, like the fact that that is there and like there is sort of like a structure in which one becomes a celebrity in that way. But like back in the early 2000s, it sort of felt like it was this wild west. And so like from what I understand, there are like some celebrities that kind of emerge out of the internet and like, you know, gain some mainstream like success, uh, some notoriety, they're able to translate that to a certain degree. But also there's a lot of other celebrities that really struggle with the idea of like, you know, being online, kind of presenting them in these new and somewhat unfavorable lights, uh, partly because of how like mean and vicious that type of, you know, that type of culture is and is sort of being unchecked. So to kind of like make a very concise question, uh, but also quite a big question, how did you see the nature of celebrity changing throughout the timeline that you were looking at in your book? Yeah, I, I know so much. I mean, the fame in the subtitle is sort of speaks to this, but it's, it's about, I mean, there's so much democratizing of fame, thanks to the internet, you know, where like, I think a lot more people are famous today than have ever been famous in history, just because we all know more people mm. than ever. There's a lot more sort of micro fame or niche fame where sort of you're famous mm. within a certain subculture or community. Um, I think that more of us are just being known online. And that process is a very messy one. And even today, I think actually people that don't, until you get some modicum of online attention, you can't, you're, you don't understand, you know, it's, it's a very weird feeling, right? I think we've all had that. Like sometimes like something you post goes viral or, you know, it's like yeah. this weird feeling that you're like, Oh, Oh, uh Oh, you know, suddenly I'm exposed to a wider audience than I might normally mm. be. Um, even if it's just for a minute, right. You have sort of a, yeah. a, there's some sort of fame to that. Um, or maybe you go viral. Like as a meme, I was talking about, I talked last night to the girl. I don't know if you saw this video that Matt Walsh did of, this girl, she made a TikTok, um, you know, just saying that she's she's 29 and single and talking about reality TV and, of course, the yes, writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I was, anyway, I was talking to her and she was just sort of saying how obviously it's been horrible, but she actually has a podcast that she's launching about relationships. And so, right. you know, maybe she can sort of like use this opportunity to promote her podcast and have her own built, you know, use it like to build her own audience. And kind of, I was yeah. thinking like, that's such a modern thing where kind of like everyone has a platform now or like a yeah. like even if it's small like maybe they use these opportunities to grow it or they squander it or whatever but that's something that's it, very yeah different. it's really interesting because i guess like when you sort of think about how we sort of understood celebrity like you know just a little more than a decade ago there is sort of like what feels to be like a very formal structure yeah. Um, you know, celebrities have agents, they have like certain, you know, elements that protect them. Um, you know, but, out, but over time where like the idea of, you know, the, the, the pressure, and I don't know like whether you have any thoughts on this or whether you would agree with this, but to me, it sort of felt like there was this pressure among a lot of celebrities, especially younger ones and especially female ones, um, of, uh, like having to sort of become more relatable to sort of expose more of themselves, to give more of more of themselves. And at that same time, like the internet is kind of there doing that, right? I think one of the element, like one of the things that you touch on through the book and also, as you mentioned just now, is that like being online sort of allows you an avenue to sort of, you know, present a different version of yourself. And I imagine for like lots of celebrities, this was quite a refreshing experience, especially um, in relation, you know, especially compared to like the restraints and like restrictions that that type of formal celebrity structure had. Um, now I'm not like, so, cause I think that example that you gave is so interesting about this woman who like has posted a TikTok and it has garnered like a lot of attention. I saw like a lot of that attention just being quite horrible things being said about her. Yeah. Um, but like the protection of that is not like, 
you know, there is not sort of like a structure that is like sort of protecting her or insulating her from these kind of like hurtful or hateful comments. The approach that she takes is like, well, actually, not only is there this feeling that I expect it, but maybe I can do something out of this, right? Like the hate and the attention, like, you know, whether it's love or whether it's hate, it's still attention and you can use attention to sort of like build your own thing, whether that be a podcast or a brand or anything. And like that to me sort of feels like this real kind of like the ways in which we understand celebrity like not even just like the people who are uploading in the creators, but as like online users, right? Like the idea, I think when I saw that video, I was like, you know, and when you were sort of explaining that to me, like it's quite telling that my reaction to that is, oh, that's not surprising actually. And I I know lots of examples of people who have like used the sort of hate and the shit that they've got online to basically make content. We do that on the show sometimes. I do that on the show sometimes. So it's quite interesting like how that's now become like a mainstream. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I totally, yeah, it's become this sort of like mainstream thing. It's it's hard though, as you mentioned, you know, you don't have the protections. And I think like, I mean, I've written a lot about online harassment, obviously, and and talked about this a lot, but like, you know, there used to be this this delineation where you had a support system, you had a publicist, you had a security, right? Like you had all this stuff. And now I think that a lot of people are forming a lot of parasocial relationships with random people on the internet with micro fame. And these people, it's like everyone has the problem of celebrity now. You know what I mean? Like all of us can get stalkers or weird fans or, you know, deal with obscene amounts of hate. You know, if we step on the wrong corner of the internet, like we all mm. kind of have to suffer through these problems that I think previously were reserved for yeah. people with actual resources like celebrities. Sure. And I also imagine that fame, like, or at least like the idea of celebrity is far more controlled, like not that long ago. Like if you are sort of like a film star or a musician, again, that structure is very much rooted in the idea that like your sort of exposure to fame will kind of be in those very particular categories. And I wonder what your thoughts are on just like the idea of the platforms. You know, we speak about this on the show, like in different contexts, but the idea of the platform um, exposing someone to like almost every corner of the internet, whether you like it or not. And so as a result, like, you know, a celebrity or it feels like lots of like kind of contemporary celebrities now can't really just be musicians and they can't really just be actors and they can't really just be like artists and stuff. They kind of have to do bits of everything. They have to sort of say the right things in order to sort of placate like multiple sides. It feels like the pressure on celebrity is so much higher in part because platforms by design expose you to everything, including areas of the online world that like you know, the things that you create or the things that you say were never sort of really designed for or for an audience in that sector. A hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And so like on that note, I I, on, I wondered whether you could talk a bit about like, um, this is like a good way to sort of talk about the rise of the platform, which again is like a yeah. centerpiece of your book. Um, yeah, I wondered whether you could tell me a bit about how we sort of get from a kind of more um, frag- like a more sort of segmented internet, one where we sort of have blogs and we have like, you know, specially coded pages and just like, you know, the, the idea of the website, basically. How do we get from that to like, you know, your MySpaces where, you know, you have like your first kind of social networks, but still like other websites exist to uh, the, the more modern era where like, you know, the, you know, websites are now Facebook pages. And I mean, basically, how do we sort of get to the beginnings of like what we would call and what you call like a platform economy? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it all emerged really in sort of the late aughts um, with Facebook. Like, I mean, Facebook really became this like mass platform that standardized social media. It kind of took the blog world. And and obviously Tumblr did this 
too, where you started to see this like social functionality mm. and sort of social layers like added on everything. I mean, I talk a lot about the launch of the newsfeed and kind of how, I mean, a lot of people don't think of Facebook when they think of influencer culture or the content creator world or stuff, but it's like, I think that newsfeed sort of on Facebook taught everyone to start to post for an audience, even if it was just an audience mm-hmm. of their family and friends. Um, and, and I think that it sort of like also birthed this, um, you know, popular format of social media that we still have to this day of this like very standardized social experience where like you upload video, you upload whatever, but everyone's profile looks the same. Everyone, you know, like it's very easy to navigate. It's easy to kind of like delineate different pieces of content. Mm. Um, I mean, just to kind of like touch on something that you were saying, because it sort of feels like there's a change that happens uh, between that period of like the late aughts to like the early like 2010s. Um, where we sort of go from one thing, like, you know, the idea of like the kind of personalized, uh, you know, internet page, be it your MySpaces, be it your Pixos and so on. Um, like people like kind of reject that and like the uniformity sudden suddenly becomes like more desirable. And I wonder whether that's because of like a kind of broader change in the way that we understand what the internet is supposed to be about. And so, I mean, you know, from like a personal thing, I know that my jump from Facebook, my my jump to Facebook partly came from friends of mine who were joining, but also came from this idea that like, I had to accept that I was never going to become MySpace famous. Um, And no matter how much I tried to like learn how to code, to tweak my page, to make it look really cool. And it had some really cool effects on it. Like I'm not, you know, I was quite proud of myself that I was able to do that, but it didn't yield the sort of social results I wanted. I mean, all of a sudden you have like Facebook where everything is uniform and suddenly it sort of feels like everyone's on the same page and that this is what the internet's supposed to be about. Like, you know, everyone is supposed to be equal and like, you know, your social relationships build out of this kind of idea of equality that the internet or like this version of the internet seems to be espousing. And I wondered whether you saw that in the course of doing your research, even just a broader idea of like the internet's supposed to be this like level playing field. And that's what, and the platform was there to basically reinforce the idea of the level playing field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is like, there is never a loving level playing field on the internet. It's, it's such an illusion. Like these platforms like to they sell this notion and this false idea that it's a level playing field. Like anyone can make it, you know, um, mm. but not everyone can make it. And it's not like, it's like, I mean, it is, it's democratized so much. It is opened up so much opportunity and in a lot of ways it did level the playing field for a lot of people in certain ways but you know these platforms are also very shaped by their algorithms and um sort of what mm. content format they're pushing and only a certain amount of people can make it online not everyone can inherently make it so you know i think it's just mm. there's those sort of dynamics at play that kind of also feels like it's at the heart of well like one of these sort of like elements that drives the idea of the creator right like if there's yeah. a level playing field, then like as a like you know I I I tend to watch like quite a lot of YouTube, and uh you know you, there's so many times that YouTubers kind of present the idea, but well ever, anyone can sort of like make it in this space. Uh, like you just sort of need to like pick up a camera and like do your thing, and you can become a creator. And like suddenly, like with enough hard work and enough like effort, you can become like Casey Neistat or Mr. Beast or like you know I I it very much shows my age that like those are the only two that I can like think of right now. And you sort of cover so much more. Um, I wondered, like, when you were doing your research, do do like content creators still sort of like believe that? How do they view these platforms now? Like, do they still view it as a kind of level playing field where, with enough hard work and effort, you can sort of make it and like you know go from a small town to the Hollywood Hills and like live in a creator house and like have a great time? 
Yeah, I think that some of them certainly are drinking the Kool-Aid and especially a lot of teenagers and young people believe that. But um, I think anybody that's been in the industry, you know, for a time knows that it's just not true. <laughs> it's it's incredibly mm. hard. And these platforms kind of rely on no content creators getting the true upper hand, right? Because they don't want, I mean, ultimately, that's why a lot of these platforms were so hostile to the creator world for, you know, over a decade is because they don't mm. like when users have too much power on the platforms, they want to have the power on the platform as a tech company. And so, um, you know, I think it's, yeah, there's always that tension. And I think it's just sure. hard. I think also, it's, you know, there was this interesting, like, um, I can't remember who wrote it, but my friend was telling me about it. But it's like this essay that some academic was writing, but it was sort of about how the internet revived this notion of the American dream. And how, mm. like, by the late 90s, like, it was really stagnant. And, like, you know, it was very clear that, like, you couldn't really, there wasn't a lot of, like, class mobility. There wasn't a lot of, you know, income inequality has only been getting worse for decades. Like, it's it's very hard to make it. And I think most people by the early 2000s sort of understood, like, okay, not actually, maybe not actually everyone can make it in America. You know, it's it's yeah. not this land of equal opportunity. And the internet really did revive it. Like, this this notion that social media sells to people is very in line with, I think, American culture mm. and American values where it's like, yeah, anyone makes it with just enough hard work. It's not true. It's never true. But mm. it's kind of this lie that they rely on to keep a steady stream of people posting. Mm. I think this was also a good point, because when I was writing the notes, I one of the things I was thinking about was like the post 2008 crisis and like and the, the broader like crisis of capitalism and i don't think it's a coincidence that like the creator economy sort of emerges in the aftermath of that the platform economy also doing the same thing um because where like the 2008 recession really sort of shows that like you know entrenched inequality is very much like the part and parcel of living in a western society um you know, the system that had sort of like projected the idea of wealth in these western countries both in the us and in the united kingdom um, you know, was all were all sort of built on these kind of false premises. And then as like world leaders are trying to sort of figure out how to basically revive capitalism, like all of a sudden you have this much more consolidated, like consolidated internet, which is kind of giving that promise that like, you know, with enough hard work and effort, um, you know, you can sort of, uh, you know, be successful. So the system still works. And yeah. I, I wondered whether you had any thoughts about like how this fits into like the broader tech space and you know, one of the like one of the things that sort of marked that period until very recently is the idea of like tech companies really being at the heart of kind of reviving the economy, like re yeah, reviving like Western economies. Um, and so, you know, they've given lots of tax breaks. They are sort of like you know rewarded with like low interest rates. They're sort of building these systems that a lot of creators end up using um, and still continue to use to this day. Uh, to which, I, and, and I know that you don't cover like corporate affairs, so I don't want to like go too much into that side. But I do wonder whether you had any thoughts on whether like the post-recession world kind of influences the types of stuff that is being created, but also how creators actually, like what they're, like the creator relationship to the internet, how much of that is also influenced by this kind of very unique historical crisis and the ways in which tech presents itself and positions itself as... Well, wait, yeah. I'm, yeah, sorry, let me just respond before I forget. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there, I'm like, I have no attention span. Um, I I was just going to say, I think there was actually a lot happening around 2008 and around the second half of the aughts, in addition mm. to the financial crisis, like the financial crisis redefined a lot of like 
I think it like upended a lot of industries and it sort of like, it was very much the death of a certain type of New York. I talk about this with like socialite rank kind of in the city of like this, um, this like hyper wealth, you know, like the money all over, you know, like boom times. Like I think it, people got more scrappy and turned to the internet for their creative projects. You also have to remember that that was the writer's strike. There was a huge, um, yeah, of course. I forgot. Of, yeah. Yeah. Like television content. And so you saw an explosion in, and I talk about this in the book too, of reality TV and reality course, TV, yeah. like so much of what reality TV did is also kind of change people's understanding of fame. It was like, oh wait, suddenly average people can be on TV and be stars, you know, and like, and that bridge and also web video, which that actually got a lot cut from my book. And I think you could write a whole separate thing on web video, but like Mm. there was a lot sort of shifting in the entertainment ecosystem in the traditional Hollywood ecosystem alongside these tech, you know, this sort of like tech innovation. Um, And I think a lot of people also, a lot of early content creators and bloggers and people, myself included, like they turned to the internet because they didn't have the, there weren't the career opportunities that there would have been maybe even five years before. I mean, I got into Tumblr because I was working a temp job, you know, like I didn't have anything Mm. else to do. And I think a lot of people, when I talk to people from that era, especially early YouTubers, it was kind of a similar thing. It was a lot of like disaffected millennials that were like, well, Mm. the internet is fun and it's kind of this creative outlet for me. And I'm going to do something on there because I don't have the opportunity to, you know, maybe do a job that like, you know, I just think like the economic realities were sort of different. And a lot of people had jobs that maybe they're creative people, but they were sort of doing jobs to get by. And so they turned, they did creative projects on the internet. Yeah, that's a really good point. I completely forgot about uh, that. But that's like, yeah, that's actually like a really good point. And it kind of brings me to another thing about reality TV. Um, and like its relationship to like internet culture, like there's, um, you, you write like, so, you know, there's some inter- really interesting sections about um, like the sort of advent of reality TV and it's kind of like meshing with internet culture. Um, I completely forgot about like the simple life with Paris Hilton, uh, for yeah. example. But so that was like a real like flashback. But I wondered whether you could talk a bit more about that relationship between reality television and the internet. Like at what point, because you, you mentioned that initially like lots of TV executives are very, very skeptical about what the internet like can do, what it can offer, whether there is sort of a crossover. Um and I wondered whether, like, is it yeah. like post two thousand eight, where there's kind of they have to resort to, you know, well, you know, these internet celebrities are there and they kind of like have a decent following, and we need to produce new stuff. No, like, do they kind no. of turn? No, no, okay. no, no, yeah. no, no. They, what, it's what, not two thousand eight at all. Relationship? No, I mean, here's the thing: is that they, the reality, the Hollywood was in a completely different, t- totally different ecosystem. Like there wasn't mm. overlap. Um, some. I mean, some like UTA started their digital department, I think in 2004, um, and they started to sign early MySpace stars and they did deals mostly with for like mm. MySpace video. They were doing web shows. Um, and then, and, and, and Brent Weinstein is sort of like the original digital, you know, talent agent who, you know, founded the UTA's digital team. Like, you know, he's, he, they were working, they were sort of do, doing deals with people on MySpace, but and sometimes those people on MySpace, like Tila Tequila, would go into reality TV, mm. but it was a totally separate, like that was very separate than, from Hollywood. Hollywood, like traditional Hollywood, like actors and things like that, 
throughout the 2000s was very separate. And that you had these crossover moments, like for instance, I think a lot of people thought, especially around the, from 2010 to 2014, you know, there's that famous Variety magazine cover with Shane Dawson and I think it's Jenna Marbles, but it's like, you know, like YouTubers, mm. are they taking over TV? I think Todd Spangler maybe wrote it. I can't remember. He wrote so many iconic articles in that era. But, um, you know, um, they, like the Fred movie is a perfect example. Like they tried to take YouTubers and put them in traditional Hollywood formats and it failed every single time. Mm. And it has always failed. And to this day, it's failed. I mean, look at, unfortunately, the Hype House show on Netflix, right? Or the Demilio show, like, no, it never works when you try to take these um, internet personalities and shove them into traditional formats. It's just very hard. I mean, maybe there's one or two people that can successfully cross over, but mostly not. And it really wasn't until the pandemic and the past two years when it's not even that content creators jumped to Hollywood. It's more that like people in Hollywood are like, there's this new, and I wrote about, I actually made a video about this recently. Um, on my YouTube, but like, there's this new class of content creators where people working people in Hollywood now recognize the internet as a way mm. to get attention. Like, so it was really the pandemic that fused it all together, basically. And you have all these people like, I mean, like Jordan Firstman's like a good example, right? Like, he's like a TV writer. He acts. He's also an influencer, you know, and like doing brand deal or mm. Lucas Gage is another one like Lucas. Yeah. You know, he's a Hollywood movie star, right? But also an influencer and 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 very good at leveraging the internet for attention mm. and so again like i i just think it's like it's the 2008 was nothing you know like they were still living in yeah. separate worlds because the internet was still so small back then and there was no money in it there's only money has only come with sort of gen z yeah that's a good point. And like, um, again, like it sort of like leads up to like the other question you, you sort of mentioned this like earlier on in the show. Um, but one of the things that I was interested in, I think you wrote some stories about this or like we talked about this like a very long time ago, which was about, uh, creators like trying to unionize or like sort of doing attempts at unionization and that, that sort of broader idea that like, you know, as, uh, you have a generation that has like sort of grown up in a much more online way than previous ones, they kind of recognize that, you know, they have a different relationship to the platforms and one that I think they understand like much more holistically than maybe like people like generations who are kind of evolving with those platforms were able to do. Um, and I wondered whether, uh, you could talk about how different John, like different generations of influences, how, like what differences that, you know, you um, saw as you were sort of studying them and also as you continue to report on them are the Gen Z uh, or like younger uh, younger influencers for lack of a better term uh, like are their concerns like like different to previous generations of influencers like are they much are they like more um, you know commercially uh, not uh, insistent but like more kind of commercially aware uh, are they kind of like do they think about their sort of plat presence online as being more of like a business transaction. I don't know whether this is making any sense, but I guess like the point I'm trying to make is like, you know, as they kind of understand the internet as being something that, you know, and something that they can be monetized and can monetize through, uh, what are their sort of concerns and what are their um, fixations as uh, like people who sort of produce stuff online and are like by and large, you know, contemporary content creators? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think like Gen Z young people's relation to the inter relationship to this whole world is so different, so different. One, they just take it as a given and they're not, they don't, I think young people, because they grew up immersed in this digital 
ecosystem and this digital entertainment landscape, they don't sort of inherently think of like YouTube as like less than or like secondary or like writing for the Mm. web as like, oh, what, you know, you couldn't get a piece in the print Atlantic magazine or something. (laughs) Oh, it's only the website. Like, um, that's just something like, I just think of that all the time because one time I wrote a feature for the Atlantic and these people online were like, you didn't really write for the Atlantic. You only wrote for the website as if that's (laughs) not the real you you know what it's so funny it's just had to laugh at that distinction but I so I think that like it's good that those distinctions are going away there's also so much money and I think with that sort of money pouring in um I think there's a better understanding of labor because of the amount of money in the space now I think when there was less money in the space it was easier to see like oh well it's just these creative people doing their side projects and now it's like okay, wait a minute, people are making millions, the tech companies are making billions, but like, where's our cut of the pie, you know? Um, And so, you know, I think that they also, because they don't consider making things for the internet, like inferior, they recognize like, okay, this is real. You're writing, you're directing, you're editing, you're doing, you know, creating content is work. Um, Mm. But I, I think it's just been hard because it's very hard to have any kind of cohesive labor movement in this country, period, much less in such this like disparate system. I mean, it's sort of similar to the gig workers where you're doing sort of this like app mediated work. Um, But a lot of people are not even getting paid directly by the platforms. You know, they monetize through their merch shops and stuff. So it's hard. How much of it is also rooted in stasis? Because I feel like even though they can be used interchangeably, like one of the appeals of like the internet um, and it's like one of the reasons why I think like lots of people like posted and didn't really necessarily think about it as being like, should I be paid like per post that I do or like per video that I do is the idea that like, you know, with enough kind of hard work and with enough sort of presence, like these platforms could afford you a status that leads you to like opportunities further down the line, um, which like yeah. may be true for certain well, creatives. But for, yeah, it goes back to this notion of like online attention as a currency. Like I always say with TikTok, mm. like TikTok doesn't have the monetization, you know, YouTube has the best sort of monetization structure is most stable. But TikTok rewards you with attention and followers. And that is a valuable form of currency in its own, you know, Um, and audience discovery and having a platform is valuable. I think it's hard because it's it's sort of about how you leverage that. And some people can very successfully monetize their platform and some people can't successfully monetize their platform. It's really dependent on so many factors. Um, Yeah. But yeah, there is that sort of like extra element. Yeah, I guess there's also the element too of like, you know, and maybe one of the reasons why kind of creators unions like aren't kind of necessarily successful right now is because the way that like at least the way as i understand it as a viewer and as a listener and stuff is that when you're sort of producing content there is this sort of implicit idea that you're also in competition with other people and so you're not really seeing yourself as like oh you know you're a fellow creator like you know that that is all demarcated again by like status location geography uh, you know, culture as well, I think is a big element of it too. And so as these platforms are sort of structured around this kind of broader idea of competition that is like denoted by algorithms, like increasingly more complex AI powered and so on, the idea of sort of like seeing yourself like in conjunction with everyone else creating stuff for the benefit of a platform and then thinking about what that platform then owes you, that sort of feels like something that may be at the beginning stages right now, but something that may need more time to kind of evolve um, as people sort of become, or even just as the idea that like online creation is a form of a labor practice and does like deserve attention as a labor practice. Well, also it's like, I mean, I think you have to look at each, basically like what each content creator is, is a small media business. Yeah. 
it's a small independent media operation. And everyone monetizes differently. You have people that 100% rely on the TikTok creator fund, right? And then you have people that like, don't I mean, some of the most successful YouTubers, like the Nelk boys, who I wrote about a couple years ago, <laughs> right? Like, they've been demonetized forever. Like, they've almost never been monetized. They never monetized through the platform, but they have, they sort of leverage their audience to launch a gym. You know, they have a line of gyms. They have their $70 million seltzer brand. They have merch shops. Like, it's a hugely successful business. Yes, they built it on the back of YouTube and they rely on YouTube for audience growth and marketing, but would they join some union for like creator minimum wage? Like they've never, they don't make any money off YouTube. So they, you know, it's just like the interests and the business models for each content creator are so different. I think it would be like trying to have like a small business owners union. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's just hard. It's like, and there are, yeah, there are like, um, that doesn't mean that they don't all have shared goals and interests, right? Like there are like the small business lobby or whatever, right? Like there are people that actually do, work on behalf of certain business owners and stuff. Um, Mm. There's also the American Influencers Council, which is like a trade group. Yeah. So I think that, I think there's like room for collective bargaining and collective action and sort of like collective lobbying. I just think, like you said, it's, it's going to be hard to kind of get everyone on board. And it's only in the past couple of years that people meaningfully started to talk about it. Mm. One of the things you sort of say at the end of the book is, and I think this is actually like one of the most true observations, uh, like for anyone's like sort of studying the internet, but it's one of those things where it doesn't kind of quite hit you until you think about it, which is the idea that we are all content creators. And I wondered whether you could sort of elaborate on that idea. Um, and like, I don't know, like how you sort of, how we should be thinking about ourselves as content creators, because I think the argument that is, I think one of the arguments that you make is, like the way in which we sort of change internet culture and the way that we sort of make it like fairer and more like, you know, open and even try to achieve like a more level playing field rather than one sort of idealized by tech companies. It's to sort of think about like uh, ourselves as like producing kind of content and, you know, again, in this like very specific relationship to platforms. I wondered whether you could elaborate on what you meant by the idea that like we are all content creators and therefore if we are to like really change the change the way that the internet works we need to sort of think about ourselves in that way yes i'm so glad <laughs> it it's so difficult to get that um to communicate that to people because their reflexive response is no mm. i'm not and i tried to write it i wrote i rewrote that conclusion so many times but just to kind of walk through people sort of like just from a high level of like, okay, you've read this book, like this is what a content creator is. Now think of your usage of the internet. You do this too. This is you. Like this is all of us. Like we are all doing this. Like, and we all have a stake in, in this, you know, you think of like this, again, it's like this delineation of like, oh, this is other people. I think actually this is changing because people are, I mean, especially with young people, like they all are so online, they sort of understand this, like any post you have can go viral. Like we're all posters in a lot of ways, even if, and also even if you don't, as I talk about this in the book too, I mean, in that sort of end section is like, even if you don't participate, I mean, people that are like, oh, I don't post online. You have a digital presence. You exist in the internet. The internet is the default reality that we all live in now. It's things that happen online and your online reputation and your online persona. That is... Mm so much bigger than anything in your real life, which is inherently sort of limited, right? And, and can't, can only, and, and ephemeral. Um, and yeah. so anyway, I just, I think it's important for all of us to kind of recognize this, even if we consider ourselves to be quite offline people or, 
not big sharers. Like we all are internet users and we're all living in a very yeah. internet mediated world. Well, I think, I, yeah, I, I mean, what I was going to add was I think that you're completely right. And the reason why I say that, like one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is just sort of the idea of like expansive surveillance, citizen surveillance as well. And the idea again, that like, it's somewhat naive to sort of think that you can simply opt out of the internet, partly because of the way that interactions are kind of like heightened and mediated by it. Um, even on sort of like grand scales, like, you know, I think a lot about how there are like, you know, you know, endless like lynchings in India, for example, that are the result of like chain WhatsApp messages. And this is just like a routine thing. Um, and it was something yeah. that like the government like tried to ignore for a very long time until like a bunch of local governments were like, no, like the sort of the fact that WhatsApp is the most popular platform in this country and the fact that conspiracies are sort of like flowing through here and there's no meaningful way to like regulate or moderate them means that people are actually dying. And then on sort of like a much smaller, but indeed much more serious level is the idea. And you know, you know, you sort of touch on this both in the book and, you know, as we've sort of spoken about in this episode, but like anyone has the potential to go viral, even if they don't have an account. Right. Um, you know, you can go, you know, you can go viral just by being filmed like, you know, on a bus exactly. or at a train station or in public. And so, you know, you can't, so there's no like meaningful, meaningful opting out. One of the questions I had when I was thinking about this is whether this like, what that says about the relationship between an internet user that is sort of forced to kind of engage in this relationship and a platform, because one of the things you say in the book, or like one of the things you know in the book is when the internet was a bit more separated, you know, you would sort of, there was an active choice to join a social platform and there were reasons behind doing that. And also there were some platforms that really wanted people to join for like, you know, various different reasons, be it celebrity entertainment or for like, you know, forming like a different system of social status. Now it kind of feels like platforms don't really need creators anymore. I wondered whether, number one, you agreed with that statement, but also um, what that changing relationship, the idea that like these platforms don't necessarily need to court influences or court celebrities because they can sort of create them quite naturally and quite quickly. What does that suggest to you about the changing nature of uh, the relationship between everyday people and you know the tech? platforms that dominate the way yeah, that information is distributed. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Um, no, I think tech yeah, <laughs> I think tech platforms definitely need creators and I think they it, it, they they have a symbiotic relationship, you know, the content creators and the tech platforms like the tech platforms are not going to they spend a huge amount of time and money cultivating creator, you know, now, you know, their user base like they need they want to maximize time and attention. I think what they don't like is when any one creator has too much power on the platform or too much sway mm -hmm. or sort of dictates the experience. Like I think they try to keep that in check and um, that can be very frustrating, but then you have people like Mr. Beast, you know what I mean? That just sort of like yeah. are able to sort of dominate a specific platform. Um, I, I think that, yeah, but I mean, they rely, I mean, the content creators are the ones that are bringing the, creativity and energy like without people posting on these social platforms that they're nothing you know what i mean and that's i talk about that in the book too it's like social platforms and social technology is, is just very unique form of technology and this is why i love writing about it so much it's like because the users inform the product so much like so much of what these platforms become is defined by their user base and yes it's on the platforms themselves they have features and you know take steps to cultivate specific user bases but it's also kind of what people make of them that makes that, that drives a lot of the value within these companies. Mm. And yeah, they do have a lot of people like I, I agree with you, like 
they don't need everyone. Like they have a lot, you know, if you drop out tomorrow, they can replace you with somebody else immediately. Like they have so much content, but they always want more. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that, that's actually that's actually like a very, very good point. Um, I'm just conscious about time. And I wanted to ask you one last question before we sort of wrap up, uh, which was like in the course, you've been working on this book for a really long time. You've also been reporting in the space for a really long time. Were there any stories that you've sort of come, you came across while researching this that really kind of popped out at you as being like a really good indicator of where the sort of future of like the creator economy is heading towards? Like, were there any kind of people you spoke to uh, be it influencers, be it users, that sort of suggested to you that like, okay, like this is this is like a really good example of where you think uh, creator culture is heading. Yeah, I didn't get into it in my book actually because it was kind of too recent. Um, but but I've written about it. Um, I I think that the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial was a really seminal moment on the internet actually, mm. and really provided this playbook for a way for sort of this way for content creators to capitalize on news content for audience growth. And they've been doing that for a while. Like content creators have always used news and especially pop culture news as sort of like ways to grow an audience. You know, they hop on specific trends, but that moment really showed if they can sort of cover news stories in specific ways, just Mm. the level of audience and money they can make. I mean, the, the, Pro, ja- pro Johnny YouTubers made up obscene amounts of money, um, you know, spreading mm. horrible misogyny. Um, and so I just, you know, it's been interesting because I've been watching every single big news event now, ever since that trial, it's the same playbook and a lot of times the same creators, mm. but really it's like people that watch that happen and we're like, oh my God, it unlocked something where like news is a really big like it's this commodity now where every big news event yeah. it's like okay i'm gonna be the one oh you war in ukraine happening okay hey guys i'm going live every 45 minutes to give you guys updates on ukraine you yeah. know it's like these people have and it's just interesting because it's very like cable news in the 90s you know when there was these big wars and there was these wars but um you know there was physical wars in the real world but there was also wars between cable channels and sort of like who yeah. could dominate the coverage of election night 22,000 or whatever. And it's just like that every day on the internet now with the content. Yeah, this is, this is like a really good point. Cause like I, whenever I go onto like my YouTube, I, I don't really touch my TikTok anymore because it kind of gives me a lot of anxiety. Um, and I don't use it very much. So like the stuff that I get that's generated from that really does sort of say a lot about kind of the stuff that's sort of floating to the top. But I think you're right about the way in which news, and we didn't really talk about news very much on this episode. I knew that there were a few questions, but one of the things I did kind of really notice or have noticed um, right throughout the lockdown is that kind of like um, kind of constant reproduction of content and the competition between like creators um, in terms like who are sort of just like reproducing news, but adding kind of these like very entertainment style spins on it. One of the things I think one of the things that where this is really evident is anything to do with Andrew Tate. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and, and where that sort of becomes this like rolling phenomenon where they kind of like uh, you know, where content really, it, and one of the most bizarre elements of it is not even just like pro or anti-take content. It is just like these accounts that are repurposing stuff and almost like regurgitating certain things. And they're just putting stuff out there um, almost just to kind of be present and to be part of the trend. And like, they're sort of producing stuff out there just so that they can kind of build up numbers. I wondered whether like, did you like, as as someone who's reported on this space for a long time, like, 
is this kind of like a kind of concerted strategy? Like, is it just a way to really, as you mentioned, like shore up as much attention as you can. And then with like whatever following you have, you can then sort of like use that to pivot to like whatever you want to pivot to. Yes. And I wrote about that and I've talked about that so many times. I mean, look at the fact that I interviewed all these meme accounts that just posted pro Johnny Depp content for Mm. two months, nonstop, monetized the shit out of it flipped the pages. The pages became meme pages. They became drop shipping pages. You know, they're just using these events as audience capture. And often they're leaning into, you know, they're doing that through very problematic framing on the events. Like it's very sort of leaning into outreach. I mean, the people that do this very well too is of course the Daily Wire and, um, you know, all the right wing, like the right wing content create that. And I talk about this in the book, but like the right, the far right is always sort of embraced influencer culture very early. And they, they do this with news events where they like lean into like, you know, they, they mm. try to manufacture news events, but they also lean into news events and kind of cover them through specific lenses, to, especially in pop culture. Like look at how much content the daily wire made about the Barbie movie on, from every yeah. perspective <laughs> you had Ben Shapiro being pro Barbie, you know, Matt Walsh being anti Barbie. It's like, there's something for everyone, you know, and we don't have, I think actually traditional media companies are totally not prepared to operate in that ecosystem mm. at all. And um, yeah, I just think it's interesting yeah. as somebody that works in news. I don't know. I just noticed that news has become yeah. a lot more core to audience growth online. Yeah. And I feel like it's a really interesting thing. Like we don't have time to talk about it on this episode, but I think as someone like who also works in news as well, one of the really interesting elements is kind of also how like mainstream outlets, like how they sort of become more responsive to that. Or like, even though you sort of know that really what they, what these accounts are doing is this regurgitating stuff because of their popularity and because of like the scale of which success is defined in terms of information capture and repetition and distribution, you will have like quite sensible media organizations wanting to kind of copy the same format. And I don't necessarily think that's a particularly healthy thing for them to do. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, it feels like a very kind of complicated subject perhaps for another time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'm, I'm free anytime you want to have me back. <laughs> we can, we can, we can do that. Well, look, we, we are, unfortunately we've run out of time. Uh, but, uh, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this. I'm really glad that we got to do this. Um, if people want to buy your book, um, I don't know whether number one, is it available in the UK and Europe yet? Is there a date for when it will be, but also there are other ways to get books these days. Um, how, and if so, how can they do that? Um, okay, so my book is available for pre-order now. Please pre-order it. Um, you can get it if you're in the U.S. on any major retailer. Um, if you're in the U.K., it's being printed by Penguin. Um, and so you can get it through. It'll be available October 5th. Um, mm. And you can get it, you know, request it to your local library or go to a bookstore or, uh, you know, I'm sure Penguin will be selling it online in various ways. But yeah, you just you can- Google the name. You can get it from Foils. Foils, I know, you, Taylor, you lived here for a bit. I, I'm, it was Foils around when you were when you were here? No, it's Foils. It's like the big bookshop. I'm sure it was, but like there's a big oh, bookshop. Sure it's it a big seven floor one. You can get it from there, at least according to like uh, the screen I'm looking at right now. But yeah, buy, buy Taylor's book. It's really, really good. If people want to like read your work generally, how can they do that? Follow me. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Um, and also I write for the Washington Post. So you can read my work there. We will put links to those as well. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. Really appreciate your support. Uh, uh, Taylor, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.